This is so important for people to hear. We need to eliminate red and processed meats from our diet. The average person in the US right now is eating not only their body weight in meat, they're eating their body weight plus an extra 40 pounds, which is a five-year-old child. That's how much meat we're eating in the United States. And you wonder why we have more colon cancer than in Africa, than in India. I just told you why. Part of the reason why has to do with the effect of meat, specifically saturated fat, on our gut microbiome. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate you raising your health IQ with us. Let's start with a question. Did you know that 142 people will die today? from colon cancer. And it's not just today. It is 142 people every single day here in the US. But it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, we can save lives. We can save lives. And to help us do that on the show today, I will be speaking with renowned gastroenterologist, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. He and I had an opportunity to catch up recently on the exam room live, where he shared five ways that you can prevent colon cancer. And you better believe that diet does in fact have a lot to do with it, but there's also a lot more that goes into it. And he answered a lot of questions from those who tuned in to watch us live on Facebook and on YouTube. We do those shows every Wednesday at noon Eastern. Answered questions about turmeric and how important that can be in terms of preventing cancer. And of course, we know that the charring from meat, when you grill it, that's bad. But what about the charring that comes on vegetables when you grill them? Does that increase your risk of cancer? Dr. B is going to weigh in on that, plus the connection between fat and cancer. And getting into the fat that comes from plant foods versus the fat from animal sources and how they differ then in terms of cancer risk. A lot of other questions in the doctor's mailbag today as well. So let's go ahead right now and dive right in and raise our health IQs and hopefully even save a life. Dr. B, thanks for joining us. Chuck, it's always a pleasure to be here with you in the healthiest half hour literally on the entire planet. At the top, I mean, I was crunching numbers this morning, trying to figure out how many uh, unfortunate deaths there are with this disease, and it breaks down to 142 every single day. I'm curious, how many cases are you seeing in your practice? I've had, Chuck, I've had days, I've had days where I literally have diagnosed colon cancer in two different patients on the same day. Wow. This is not a rare condition. This is incredibly common. You know, just to put some numbers to it, we think between four and 5% of Americans will develop colon cancer during their lifetime. Wow. 
Now, take that, okay? So basically I'm saying is about one in 20 people will develop colon cancer and apply that to your high school graduating class. And that helps to put into perspective how many people in your class that you know, people you know and were friends with, grew up with, will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer during their lifetime. It's a lot of people. And this is a, the key here, Chuck, is that this is a very preventable disease. We don't, we don't, it doesn't need to be this way. And today we're going to talk about some strategies to help protect ourselves. But, you know, before I go there, let me just say that 150,000 people will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer in the United States this year, 150,000. And we think more than 50,000 will actually pass from colorectal cancer. And that makes it the second most deadly cancer that exists. And this is a disease, this is a disease of diet. Not every country has the same problem with colorectal cancer that we have in the United States. If you compare us to India, we have 800% more colorectal cancer than India does. 800%. If I said 50%, that would be a lot. I'm saying 800% more colorectal cancer. And Chuck, they did an interesting study where they compared the rates of colorectal cancer in African-Americans, which is our higher, highest risk population in the United States. And they compared them to people who are native Africans, native Africans eating a traditional diet. And what they found was that African-Americans had 65 times more risk of developing colorectal cancer during their lifetime than someone who is a native African. And this is attributed to diet. So we have a modifiable risk factor. We have the ability to make choices about what goes into our mouth. And those choices ultimately can determine what is the likelihood during your lifetime. It can't completely protect you, but it can dramatically reduce your risk. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Absolutely. So I, I would just crunch the numbers as you were talking there. We talked about 142 deaths every day. Well, 410 people or more will be diagnosed with it every single day. 410. That is an extraordinary number. Um that we can bring down. So let's go ahead and do just that. I know that you have put together five ways that you can help to prevent colon cancer. So let's start right at the top. What's your number one? Yeah, so I have to start off. I feel I feel compelled to say this um, because we're going to talk about diet and lifestyle and the importance of diet and lifestyle for protecting yourself. But our approach to protecting ourselves from colorectal cancer, which is highly preventable, should not be exclusively diet and lifestyle. It should include the best of diet and lifestyle and the best of 21st century healthcare. And we have the ability using colonoscopy, this is by the way what I do for a living, we have the ability using colonoscopy to dramatically reduce the risk of developing colorectal cancer during your lifetime. We believe that if everyone who is eligible, if everyone who is eligible got their colonoscopy, we believe that we would reduce the risk of colorectal cancer by 90%. Now, not everyone is going and getting their colonoscopy, but based upon the available data, even with only a percentage of the people actually showing up, you know, I said before, 150,000 people will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer this year. Without colonoscopy, without a program to protect people, that number would be 300,000. Wow. We believe that colonoscopy reduces the incidence of colorectal cancer and reduces the death from colorectal cancer by 40 to 60%. So I think it's fair to say 50% less cases of cancer, 
50% less deaths from colorectal cancer. And that's what we get by simply showing up for our colonoscopy. It's too good to pass up the opportunity. And the reason why I feel compelled to say this is I'm not just a believer in diet. I'm also a believer in using the best of medicine. And I've had patients who are vegan, vegan for decades, who have died of colorectal cancer because they refuse to have a colonoscopy. And that's why I think it's important for everyone to hear this. And let's talk a little bit uh, about how important it is also to catch it early versus in its advanced stages. So if you're getting the colonoscopy, you find some polyps, your prognosis is far better than somebody who comes in and they found the advanced stage of cancer. If you come to me hypothetically, and I'm your gastroenterologist, and I find a polyp, your risk of developing colorectal cancer is no different than a person who has no polyps at all. I removed the polyp. The polyp is what will grow into cancer if you give it time. And by doing the colonoscopy, I can painlessly remove it. I literally was doing this this morning, Chuck, like literally leading up to us starting this call. I was doing that this morning and my patients wake up and they can't tell that anything's different. But what is different is I just reduced their risk of developing colorectal cancer dramatically. Now, on the flip side, as you mentioned, Chuck, the, the risk of death related to colorectal cancer is very much attached to the stage. If you find early stage one colorectal cancer, it is highly treatable. It is curable. But if it gets to stage four colorectal cancer, which means that it has spread, not only is it not curable, because it's not, but it also the risk of death goes up dramatically. And the problem is that you can't wait until you have symptoms because by the time you have symptoms, typically it has progressed to a point that you don't want to be at. I see patients all the time with polyps and with early stage cancer, and they have no symptoms. The vast majority of people who have polyps and early stage cancer, they don't have symptoms. So you can't wait until the symptoms show up. You have to do it when you have the opportunity to have your colonoscopy, which by the way is 45 for most people. Well, I will tell you that, um, you know, this aversion that a lot of us have to getting a colonoscopy, I kind of find ludicrous when you think about it, you know, you, the prep is never pleasant. Okay. So let's just, let's just admit that right now. Right. And I think that that's really the biggest turnoff to this entire thing. And so, but once you have that one night where you're spending it in isolation, basically, um, you you have the colonoscopy the next day, and then, as you said, just the colonoscopy alone. What did you say? Reduces the risk by about fifty percent, or, or or better. I, I we believe better. We believe that we can reduce the risk up to potentially ninety percent. There it the is. The total number of cases in the United States are reduced fifty percent because we have a colonoscopy program, because we have a colon cancer screening program, we're able to reduce the total number of cases and the total number of deaths by about 50%. But that acknowledges that there's a lot of people who are eligible for colonoscopy that choose not to, and they leave themselves exposed. All right. Well, so let's, let's weigh that. So one rough night versus a lifetime of health. I mean, to me, it just, I mean, it, you don't want to roll the, the dice rough night, man. The rough night is yeah. definitely worth it. All right. Let's talk about something uh, more diet related here. What's number two on your list. All right. So this is so important for people to hear. We need to eliminate red and processed meats from our diet. The average person in the U S right now is eating not only their body weight in meat, 
they're eating their body weight plus an extra 40 pounds, which is a five-year-old child. That's how much meat we're eating in the United States. And you wonder why we have more colon cancer than in Africa, than in India. I just told you why. Part of the reason why has to do with the effect of meat, specifically saturated fat, on our gut microbiome. We produce what are called secondary bile salts because of the effect of the saturated fat on our gut microbiome. And these secondary bile salts are directly carcinogenic. But Chuck, this is not this is not the only mechanism by which red meat and processed meats cause colorectal cancer. There's also the heme iron causing an inflammatory reaction. There are also multiple forms of carcinogens formed during the cooking process of the meat. Aromatic hydrocarbons, nitrosamines, heterocyclic amines, these are carcinogenic compounds that you find associated with these products, particularly when they are being cooked at high temperatures like everyone loves to do in the summertime when they fire up their grill. All right. So I just told you five different ways that red meat and processed meats lead to colorectal cancer. And it is no coincidence that when the World Health Organization reviewed the available studies, more than 800 studies were reviewed by an expert panel of scientists. What they discovered was that the risk of developing colorectal cancer is increased with both red meat and processed meats. And as a result, they were labeled as carcinogens. That doesn't necessarily let pork and chicken and, and white meats off the hook here altogether, does it? It does not because the issue is that these these foods also contain they also contain saturated fat. They also can form these carcinogenic compounds. So while there may be a graded risk, a graded risk where the processed meats are at the top of the risk pool and red meats are below that, that does not mean that there is no risk associated with chicken or with white meat or with pork. There still is risk associated with these. They're just not showing up as powerfully in the studies that we found. All right, let's go ahead and move down the list. Number three, what do you got? So let's flip to the opposite side. A plant-based diet is the way to go. A plant-based diet is the way to go to protect yourself, to reduce your risk. Now, is this absolute risk reduction? Can you drop your risk of developing colorectal cancer to 0% by eating a completely whole food plant-based diet? No, unfortunately, that's not true. Um, what we have, our best available data, comes from the Adventist 2 study. So looking at the Seventh-day Adventists out in California, which of course many of us are aware that there is a very large population of vegetarians, of vegans, of pescatarians among this group of people. And what they found when they studied this is a statistically significant reduction in colorectal cancer incidence among vegetarians, right? So now this is important. This is important because what this means is that you can, you can change your risk. This is not just possible. This is, this is proven. This is a statistically significant reduction in the likelihood of developing colorectal cancer among people who are vegetarian. Now, 
they did not have an adequate number of colorectal cancer cases among vegans to really look at whether or not veganism performs superior to vegetarianism. That's a study that needs to be done and we need more vegans out there to study them to really know whether or not that's the truth. But the bottom line is this, a plant-based diet is the way to go. Why would that be? Well, let me just rattle off a couple of things that you will find in a plant-based diet. You will find phytochemicals, phytochemicals like EGCG and green tea, like resveratrol and grapes, like sulforaphane and cruciferous vegetables, my favorite broccoli sprouts. You will find these phytochemicals, these compounds that have all been connected to reduced risk of developing colorectal cancer. All right. You, sir, are a master of number four on your list, even wrote a book about it. So what is the fourth one on your list here? We need to crank up my favorite nutrient, which is fiber. Crank up. So I specifically left it out of the conversation about a plant-based diet because I wanted to say that fiber is a game changer when it comes to reducing your risk of colorectal cancer. How does this work? This is what's happening. When you consume fiber, it wiggles its way through your intestines until it gets down to your colon, which is where your microbiome lives. These microbes, they get into a feeding frenzy. They're so excited because you're actually giving them their preferred food. Fiber is the preferred food of your gut microbes. And when you feed them, they turn around and they reward you. They reward you by taking that fiber and transforming it into short chain fatty acids, butyrate, acetate, and propionate. I am obsessed with short chain fatty acids. I think they are the most anti-inflammatory nutrient. You and I could do an entire show about short chain fatty acids, but the bottom line is I'll cut to the chase, Chuck. When they looked at this, what they discover is that there is a direct mechanism by which short chain fatty acids specifically butyrate, reduce our risk of colorectal cancer. They can take these precancerous cells and shut them down. And they actually induce what's called apoptosis, which means that they identify the cancer cell and they say to the cancer cell, you need to disappear, get out of here. And that's what happens. They disappear, they destroy themselves. So fiber is our friend and it's no coincidence that in the largest study to date, to look at the health benefits of fiber, they found not only decreased risk of developing colorectal cancer by consuming more fiber, but what they also found was a dose response relationship. What this means is that with every incremental increase in the fiber in your diet, as you increase the fiber, you decrease the risk of colorectal cancer. Yeah. And that book, by the way, is Fiber Fueled, a fantastic read. Matter of fact, somebody in the chat already has mentioned today that they're in the middle of reading it as we speak. Hopefully not during the show, but uh, after. Again, pick it back up. So uh, just a great read. Cannot recommend that one highly enough. Fiber Fueled. Let's uh, bring everything home, my friend. What is number five? All right. Number five. I have to take advantage of this opportunity. It's a little bit self-serving. I grew up in Syracuse, New York. I am a Syracuse Orange fan, and they are playing literally right now in the ACC tournament. So it is basketball season. And I'm saying for number five, let's go Orange. <laughs> but what I really mean is not just me self-serving on Syracuse. I'm talking about turmeric. I'm talking about turmeric. Turmeric, that bright orange color. That orange color is so special because it comes from a phytochemical called curcumin. And Chuck, we have 
tons of studies, like literally hundreds of studies, where they have shown that curcumin has anti-cancer effects when it comes to colorectal cells, colorectal cancer cells. And when they have studied the effect of turmeric, which contains this phytochemical curcumin, in a high-risk population that has a condition called FAP, familial adenomatous polyposis. Basically, this is a condition where people are at extremely high risk of developing colorectal cancer. When they started giving them more curcumin, more turmeric, guess what they saw? 60% decrease in the number of polyps, 50% decrease in the size of the polyps. What I'm saying to you is that eat a plant-based diet, eat it in abundance, eat it in diversity, and let's go orange, get some turmeric in there because the turmeric is good for protecting you from colorectal cancer. Uh, the cues finds its way onto the show. I'm surprised that you're here. I, I've forgotten that the tournament was ongoing um, as we speak, man. That's that. It is March, isn't it? Okay. Uh, all right. So here's the deal. We've got our five ways that you can prevent colon cancer now. So you have actionable items that you can take with you starting this very second to reduce your risk and significantly at that. So now let's take some follow-up questions and open up the doctor's mailbag. So if there's something that you would like to ask Dr. B, go ahead, post it in the comments or the chat. And again, you can tweet it or send it to us on Instagram using the hashtag exam room live. We want to circle back to tip number one. Oh, look at that nice little graphic. Thank you. Uh, we'll circle back to the, um, the very first tip that you had as far as getting a colonoscopy, we have a question here from Shana at 1218. She says, doesn't the prep for a colonoscopy destroy your gut bacteria? Are there any alternatives? Um, well, there are alternatives to colonoscopy and I wouldn't have my own family member choose them. So for example, there is a test called the Cologuard, which does not require a prep. It is a non-invasive stool test. Here's the problem with Cologuard. It is only, I mean, this is not horrible, but it is only 92% sensitive to, for cancer. What that means is that you could have cancer and there's an 8% chance that the test fails you. And if that's the case, that is a disaster. But just as concerning, if not more concerning, is that the test is not designed to detect polyps. It is only 42% sensitive for advanced polyps. What that means is that there is a greater than 50% chance that you could have an advanced polyp on the verge of turning into cancer. And there is a greater than 50% chance that this test will fail you and not tell you that it's there. And that unfortunately means that you have missed on the opportunity to find it as a polyp rather than finding it as cancer. So I would not recommend this test for the vast majority of people. I'll spare you the people who I do recommend this test because there are some, but with regard to the prep, destroying your microbiome, it does have an effect on the microbiome. I would not classify it as destroying it. It's a transient effect. What that means is that there is a temporary change to the microbiome, but then as soon as the colonoscopy is over, you go back to eating your healthy plant-based diet and you immediately bounce back in terms of your microbiome. There is no long-term harm. I don't see patients in my clinic who are worse because they choose to get a colonoscopy. This to me is not something that I would say is a good reason to try to avoid. I mean, again, bear in mind, there are literally 50,000 people who will die of colon cancer this year. It is the second most deadly cancer. And we think that 90% of those cases could be prevented 
by simply doing a colonoscopy when we ask you to show up. So it sounds to me like you're basically saying flat out that healthy gut bacteria can be very resilient. The gut is very resilient. The gut microbiome is very resilient. I mean, the, you are far worse off taking one day of antibiotics than you are doing a bowel prep. So to, to shy away from doing a colonoscopy because you fear that the, the colonoscopy prep is going to damage your microbiome. I'm here to tell you that as a gastroenterologist and as the author of a book about the gut microbiome, I don't see that that weighs out equally. I think that the risk of colorectal cancer way outweighs any sort of concern related to the gut microbiome. 1209, Gail wants to chew the fat a little bit more. We talked a little bit about this earlier in the show. Uh, she writes, does colon cancer have a direct correlation to fat intake? And I would like to piggyback on that is what about your healthier fats that you get on a plant-based diet such as avocados and nuts? Yeah, so those, those healthier fats actually are going to protect us from colorectal cancer. So this is not increased risk because you are consuming avocados, increased risk because you are consuming nuts. Those things, first of all, avocados have a tremendous amount of fiber, a tremendous amount of fiber. If every American ate an avocado every single day, we would do we would go a very long way in terms of reducing the incidence of fiber deficiency, which is literally 95 percent of people right now. So but, you know, nonetheless, really the big concern, Chuck, is the saturated fat, saturated fat, which, of course, is predominantly found in animal products but can also be found in some, in some plant products. Um, you know, coconut oil is a very concentrated source of saturated fat and saturated fat alters the microbiome and creates a gut microbiome that is designed to create what are called secondary bile salts and secondary bile salts are carcinogenic. They've been directly tied to colorectal cancer as well as six additional cancers. All right, Sonia, I don't know if she's a fan of Syracuse, but she is asking about orange here. How much turmeric makes a difference? I use it when I make curries about twice a week, but recipes don't really call for it much all that often. Yeah, so I, I'll tell you what I have done, Chuck, to be completely honest with you when it comes to the turmeric. In the American diet, it's going to be next to impossible to get an adequate amount of turmeric by simply just consuming it as a part of your diet. And what I mean by that is that if you're leaving it to dishes that contain turmeric like curries or things of that variety, most of us just aren't eating enough of those types of foods. You know, this is, we believe honestly, Chuck, that this is part of the reason why the risk of colorectal cancer is 800% higher here compared to India, because in India they are consuming turmeric routinely. So here's what I do, Chuck. I actually consume turmeric tea on a completely routine basis. So, you know, for example, in the evening, many people will go and have a glass of wine or they'll have a beer. Instead of having alcohol in the evening, I have turmeric tea and it's so easy to make. And I just have that in the evening before I go to bed. And that's how I get my turmeric. And I do that on, you know, probably honestly, five nights a week. So Sonia popped up right away in the chat. And she says, as a matter of fact, I did go to Syracuse orange forever. How about that? <laughs> uh, here is a, uh, is a great, great question uh, from China right underneath of uh, Sonia's statement there. She's, uh, China wants to know, uh, so are we supposed to eliminate all red meat permanently or can we have a steak every once in a while on holidays and special occasions? Well, I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of like this to be completely honest with you, Chuck. Is one cigarette going to cause lung cancer? No, no one in their right mind would say that. 
Is a cigarette doing anything that's good for your health? No. Do I want my children to smoke cigarettes? Heck no. I don't see anything good that comes out of that. And so from my perspective, I mean, and Chuck, let me just be honest here. I, if there, if I saw that there were benefits to consuming red meat as a medical doctor, I would acknowledge those benefits. I don't see them. I just don't see them. I don't see, I'm not seeing any studies. There is no study that says that because you consume red meat, you live longer or that you're healthier or that you reduce your risk of disease. What we find is a pattern time after time after time where red meat ends up being connected to increased risk of disease. And in this particular case, that risk is so powerful through five different mechanisms that I shared here today, five different ways that red meat can cause colorectal cancer. That mechanism is so powerful that it's enough to actually label it as a carcinogen. So, you know, from my perspective, if you if you choose to have red meat, that's your personal choice. But I would not view it as something that's advantageous to your health on any level. Uh, China, I mispronounced your name. Uh, my apologies. Uh, so we got that right. I hope that that satisfies uh, your your question there. Uh, we do have another question here from Shelley at twelve twenty eight. How often should different age groups have a colonoscopy? If you are an average risk person, which means that you have no family history of colorectal cancer, no family history of advanced colon polyps, then typically the colonoscopy is only required once every 10 years. If, however, you have a first degree family member who has had colorectal cancer uh, or who has had an advanced colon polyp before age 60, then you should talk to your doctor about the possibility of number one, getting checked early and number two, being checked more frequently. Some people will say, I, I literally had this conversation this morning, by the way, Chuck. I had a patient, uh, patient was less than 50 years old. I don't want to reveal too many details um, due to privacy issues, but my patient was less than 50 years old and did not come for colorectal cancer screening, came because there was blood in the stool. And I found nine polyps. And two of those polyps were probably within three years of turning into cancer. Mm. If this person didn't come for colonoscopy, they would have had colon cancer. There is no question. It was just a question of how soon. And so the polyps were painlessly removed. The patient went home. There was basically no recovery. They got to go home. We will, uh, we will appropriately repeat a colonoscopy on my patient when the time is right. And what I talked to her about is that first degree family members can get checked early. And some may say, whoa, I don't want to get the colonoscopy so early. I don't want to do that. And it's like, hold on. We are empowering you. We are empowering your family. We want to protect you. We want to keep you safe. We don't want you to be one of the statistics. And if you are offered the opportunity to be checked early before age 45, you should jump at that opportunity. And I will tell you straight up, Chuck, I would myself. Uh, matter of fact, uh, I am 38 and I've had two within the last five years, um, had, had a couple of ulcers cause I was just piling too much on my plate, not food, uh, just too much stress balancing that whole work life thing. And it was just a whole deal, but, uh, really there's nothing to it. And that's why I was talking about that one night in isolation, really paying off in terms of your long-term health. It, there really is not even a question or a debate in my mind for it. Um, and the procedure itself, you, you don't feel it. You take a little nap, you wake up and that's it. I mean, <laughs> no, you get people, people tend to like the medicine so much that they ask me when I can come, you know, when can I come back doc? That medicine was great. But, you know, <laughs> but Chuck, the, my patient this morning, 
with these two advanced polyps. If we were living a hundred years ago, she would she would have colon cancer. Yeah, there just there's no doubt about it. And so yeah. we have this technology that allows us to protect people. Let's take advantage of it. Let's lean on it. Uh, we have another question here at uh, twelve twenty seven from Sherry. Uh, wants to know, uh, or Bonnie rather, I'm sorry. Do the five tips that you gave actually help with other cancers in addition to colon cancer? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, so let's go down the line here. Uh, one of the tips is specifically for colorectal cancer. That is, get a colonoscopy. So you know, getting a colonoscopy is not going to protect you from colon from cancers outside of the colon. Um, but let's go down the line here and let's talk about this. Red meat, processed meats, connected to multiple different forms of cancer, not just colorectal cancer, but multiple different forms of cancer. Plant-based diet reduces your risk of multiple different forms of cancer. Fiber, in the study that I was citing, saying that there is a dose-response relationship between fiber intake and the risk of developing colorectal cancer, guess what? They also found that fiber reduces your risk of breast cancer, reduces your risk of esophageal cancer. And turmeric, turmeric is a powerful, powerful, it, has, it contains the curcumin. Curcumin is a powerful phytochemical that may reduce our risk of multiple forms of cancer because of its anti-inflammatory effects. Really, if we boil this down, Chuck, and we simplify this, what we're looking at is we're looking at inflammatory foods, that is the red meat, the processed meats, the saturated fat, the animal products, inflammatory foods versus anti-inflammatory foods, which contain fiber contain phytochemicals. Those are the plants. The plants are the anti-inflammatory foods. If we want to age gracefully, if we want to reduce our lifetime risk of developing cancer, we can't make it zero, but we can reduce the risk of developing these, these conditions. The way to go is to maximize the fruits, the vegetables, the whole grains, the seeds, nuts, and legumes, maximize those in abundance, in diversity, minimize or completely eliminate the red meat, the processed meats, the animal products. And we are tipping the scale of balance in our favor so that we can live a long, healthy life. And as I like to say, I want to be in my 80s and dancing at people's weddings. Amen to that, my man. Amen to get boogie on down in your 80s, man. Boogie on down. Uh, we have time for a couple of more questions, so keep on posting them. We'll get to as many as we possibly can. Uh, 1228, this is a great question from Mary. Talking a lot about fiber on the show, but is it possible to get too much fiber? Yeah, it is. And I, and I, I, I don't want to uh, sit here and pretend that fiber is a, you know, the gas pedal. And all we have to do is put, put our foot down on the gas pedal and push as hard as we can. Is possible for you as an individual to exceed your capacity for consuming fiber in the same way that it is possible for you as an individual to exceed your capacity for exercise. Fiber is like exercise for your gut. Just like going to the gym, there's a certain amount of exercise that we are capable of doing. And when we go to the gym, we all kind of know what that is, right? We know how much, how far we can run. We know how much weight we can lift. And we stay within those bounds so that we don't hurt ourselves. When it comes to fiber, if you have not been consuming a high fiber diet, you want to go low and slow. As you ramp up the fiber in your diet, you don't want to go too hard. You don't want to go too fast. Ease your body into it, just like you are exercising your gut. And that's how you get more fiber. Is there an absolute excessive amount of fiber? No. Chuck, our ancestors 
study after study after study is showing us our ancestors were consuming 100 to 200 grams of fiber on a daily basis. The average American right now is getting 17 or 18 grams of fiber. There is no such thing as too much. It's just too much, too fast for right now. You need to back it off in some cases if it's excessive and more than your body can handle. All right, two more. When adding turmeric, do you have to add pepper for better absorption? Brilliant question. Probably also a Syracuse fan right there. <laughs> uh, so it's a great question because it brings it comes to a point that I, I wanted to make when it came to turmeric and I forgot to, which is that the, the active phytochemical, which is the curcumin, curcumin is not very bioavailable in its native state. All right, what that means is that it's hard for us to get as much curcumin as we actually want. And there's this health hack that I'm fascinated by, Chuck, on a number of levels, which is that when you combine turmeric with black pepper, you increase the absorption of curcumin by 2,000%. I said that right. Ooh. I'm not exaggerating. In a study, they found that by adding black pepper to curcumin, to turmeric, you increase the bioavailability of curcumin by 2,000%. Now, what I'm fascinated about is not just the 2,000%, because I think that's really cool. But what I'm also fascinated by is how did we evolve to have this combination work so well? Because when you think about curry or you think about these types of foods, they're always done in combination. It's like we found it ourselves. It's like there was an, this intuitive uh, gravitational force that pulled us in where it was like, hey, we got to put the turmeric and the Kirk and the and the black pepper together. And boom, here we go. Kitchen chemistry. All right, final question. Uh, I'm not sure that Celeste went to Syracuse. She's probably a Notre Dame graduate. That's what I'm banking on because this is one of the best questions I think has ever been asked on the show. All right, Celeste, bringing us home in a big way. Can you please clarify if charring anything has any risk i see many vegans are texture squeamish and tend to overcook things like veggie burgers i think the charring still provides somewhat of a risk regardless of what the food is there is some risk there is some risk related to high heat cooking of any type of food when you char any food there is the development of some of some carcinogenic compounds as a result of that process now that being said is it a level playing field? Is you know charring grilled like bell peppers on your grill? Is that the same as charring a steak? No. The red meat is basically designed for the purpose of creating carcinogenic compounds when you cook it, particularly at high heat. It is designed to produce carcinogens. The vegetables, the plants, when they are cooked, when they are charred, they're not designed to maximize the carcinogens. That being said, I would not I would not seek out charred food when it comes to plants. I would really try to minimize that. Do they taste good? Yeah, they taste good. Should you be doing it all the time? No, you definitely should not. You should try to minimize it.
There you go. Let's go ahead and close up the doctor's mailbag for now. If we didn't get to your question, I promise you we will save it and do our best to get you an answer on an upcoming episode. Dr. B, it's not going to be very long until you're back on the show. So I promise you we will save this. And by the way, you just saw it up on the screen. Uh, you have uh, the free plant fed gut five day challenge that people can take over at the plantfedgut.com. Talk to us a little bit about what that is. Well, I just thought that it would be a fun way to engage with people who are interested in considering a plant-based diet and engage with people who are interested in, in trying to enhance the health of their gut microbiome. And so I put together this five-day challenge where literally all you have to do is sign up and I will show up in your inbox for five straight days and I'm going to lay down, I'm going to lay down the challenge <laughs> every single day. And these are not things that are like crazy and insanely difficult. These are things that are very doable because at the end of the day, what I believe in is I believe in setting realistic expectations that you actually are capable of doing and then going out and doing them and turning them into healthy habits over the course of time because that's how we live our best life. So the five-day challenge is basically just laying down the tracks for you to move towards a more healthy lifestyle that includes a healthy diet, healthy lifestyle. Appreciate you being here and uh, definitely go out of your way to pick up a copy of Fiber Fuel, but you don't have to go far. You can just uh, pop on over to Amazon and uh, order a copy for you today. A great read. A number of people in the chat today are in the middle of the book as we speak. A number of people have also already completed it. So uh, it is just a phenomenal read. So go ahead and pick up your copy. And Dr. B, thank you so very much, my friend. It was great catching up with you. And I will say this one time and one time only just for you go orange. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Thank you, Chuck. Always a pleasure to come on the exam room podcast. Always a pleasure to connect with the wonderful people who show up for the healthiest half hour in, in the entire planet. Links to pick up your copy of Fiber Fueled and take the plant fed gut five day challenge can be found in the episode notes. A quick follow-up now on just how common colorectal cancer is. Here's some stats that were put out by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now, these are the leading causes of cancer deaths here in the United States. Lung cancer, the leading cause by far. Nearly 140,000 Americans lose their lives to lung cancer every single year. That amounts to nearly one out of every four cancer deaths. But next on that list, colorectal cancer. 52,000 people, as you heard, will die from it every single year. And the thing with colorectal cancer is that it's not a man's disease or a woman's disease. It appears to strike equally. Of those 52,000 deaths, 24,000 were women, and 28,000 were men. Going down the list, pancreatic cancer is third, followed then by breast cancer and prostate cancer. And you heard on the show today, Dr. B explained how many of those five tips that he gave apply to many of those forms of cancer to really help to prevent them, reduce the risk of developing cancer. And I'll tell you, 
If you are interested in working with one of our dietitians or doctors at the Barnard Medical Center to lower your risk of cancer, I highly recommend that you do that right now. You can schedule an appointment there by calling 202-527-7500 or visit barnardmedical.org. Have the opportunity to make an appointment to meet with Dr. Loomis or one of the wonderful dietitians who appear on the show all the time. The Fiber Queen, Lee Crosby, or Susan Levin, Maggie Neola, so many great physicians and nutritionists over at the BMC. So please pick up the phone, call 202-527-7500 or visit barnardmedical.org to schedule your telemedicine visit today. Services available in more than a quarter of the country. And yes, insurance is accepted. And again, we are raising your health IQ five days a week with the exam room, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on YouTube and on Facebook, and this podcast every Tuesday and Thursday. And if you do feel like you raised your IQ today, please go ahead and pay it forward by subscribing to the exam room by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcast or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever shows are available. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating and a nice comment. And that's going to do it for us today. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Will Bolsowitz for gracing us with his presence and bestowing a ton of knowledge and hope and wisdom with us on the show today. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>